God, the high King of heaven, the one that we praise and honor today and magnify. He truly is our vision. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts, the 16th chapter of that book, the 16th verse of that chapter, through to verse 24. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 16, beginning in the 16th verse. The Bible says, And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief priests, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. When the crowd rose up, together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we serve the high king of heaven. You truly are the ruler of this world. And Lord God, I remember Jesus saying that the God of this world, the devil, would be undone by him. His sacrifice would reverse the only power he truly has, which is death. You've overcome that through your sacrifice. We thank your son for all that he has done. We pray as we look at the last vestiges of a dying enemy, that we would rejoice in Christ's authority and rest in his power, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
as we noted when we, when we began studying the ministry conducted by the Apostle Paul and his team in Philippi, there are three very well-known biblical stories contained in this part of the book of Acts. The first was Lydia, which we completed last time. The second is probably just as well-known, although the name of the individual involved is not known. This individual was a demoniac, a demon-possessed person who lived and worked in Philippi. Now, at first, this might seem to be an odd way to describe a demoniac. We, we, we don't normally think of demon-possessed people holding down jobs. When we, when we think of a, a person who is demon-possessed, the stories that normally come to our mind are accounts like the Gerizim demoniac or the demoniac that was identified in conjunction with the transfiguration. Let's look at those two and, and kind of see what most people think about when they think about demon possession. The first is in Mark chapter 5, verses 2 and 5, 2 through 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Listen to what Mark said happened with the Gerizim demoniac. And when he, this is Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. A little further ahead in Mark's gospel, after Jesus and the, and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, descended from the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, they met a large group of people who had gathered to see if Jesus could cast a demon out of a man's son. And listen to how the the demon-possessed boy was described in Mark chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and, and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Drop down to verse 20, as Jesus observes this in action. And they brought the boy to him, and when he, and when he saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. These types of images of demon possession have been reinforced in many people's mind from Hollywood as various movies throughout the years have sought to portray someone receiving exorcism. In these movies, the response of the demon-possessed person is pictured like, like these two stories of a person with either superhuman strength or, or someone who's lost their mind and are foaming at the mouth and are uncontrollable. But that's only a fraction of the types of responses that take place in reference to demons. This morning, we're introduced to a demon-possessed girl who was holding down a job in Philippi. Well, te technically not a job. 
She was, in fact, a slave who earned her masters an income. Hardly the picture that the stories we reviewed so far this morning portrayed. This reminds us that demon possession is not always readily apparent to the world around the person. Now, this might lead someone to want to conclude that what we have here is not actually demon possession, but demonic influence. Well, that, of course, would be false because Paul cast the demon out. So what is demonic influence? That's a little bit different than demonic possession. Demonic influence deals with the exploitation of the world and the flesh by Satan's forces in order to influence or pressure or seek to shape the behavior of human beings. That's demonic influence. It's, 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 it's using the world and the flesh to really pressure human beings to, to, to seek to shape their behavior and conduct. This influence can be expressed on both the individual level, but also as well on, as we studied in the past, on the national level as well. This is something that nations experience. It impacts Christians and unbelievers alike, unlike demon possession, which is not applicable to Christians. It's clear from Scripture that angelic forces are behind some of what takes place in the physical world. According to Daniel chapter 10, there are both demons and elect angels that have been assigned to influence and impact human governments and their leaders. Daniel 10 verse 20, Daniel 11 verse 1. These, these, these angelic beings are obviously on different sides of the conflict between God and the devil, and they fight each other for control and influence. Daniel 10 verse 13 as well as verses 20 through 21. Further, church, the world system is controlled by the sovereignty of God, but under the sovereignty of God, the prince of the power of the air is the devil himself. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. But Christians must be particularly cautious when it comes to angels and demons. For even in the Bible, we see accounts of errors among the believing when it comes to, their su to these supernatural persons. We've got to be careful. Uh, we see at least a couple of errors in the ancient church in the Bible itself. For example, one such error was the prominent place that angels played in Judaism, particularly giving of the law, according to Acts 7, verse 53, and Galatians 3, 19, this led certain Jews to elevate angels beyond their true nature as simply ministering spirits, Hebrews 1, verse 14. The author of Hebrews, in the first two chapters of his letter, diffuses this false view by indicating that Christ surpasses angels. Amen. Hebrews 1, verse 3, through Hebrews 2, verse 18 one of the errors that we see regarding angels in the Bible. Another error regarding angels that we see in the Bible was reflective in the city of Colossae during the same time. There in that city, there was a worship of angels, a, a veneration of angels, chapter 2, verse 18 says. 
and they worshiped them as a means through which one gained access to a, a special knowledge and, and thereby a fuller or more complete salvation experience. They venerated angels. This, this knowledge would come apparently through rigorous treatment of one's physical body, thus allowing them to gain some sort of visionary experience that would aid them in their religious life. This, these, visionary, uh, these visionary experiences were apparently guided by angelic beings. Angels were viewed there as intermediaries to God. And Paul calls these things philosophies and empty deception in Colossians 2 verse 18. There in this text, we see that Christ was viewed as nothing more than another intermediary among intermediaries. Well, Paul has to diffuse this in the book of Colossians. How does he do that? Well, first, he argues that Jesus Christ cannot be just any other intermediary to the heavenly realm because he created everything, including angels, Colossians 1.16. Second, the only spiritual knowledge that exists is of Christ himself, who is the mystery of God, and which is attainable only by faith in Christ through the apostolic message, First, uh, Colossians 1, verses 24 through Colossians 2, verse 5. Thirdly, Paul argues that Jesus is the head over all these powers and authorities, not an intermediary on par with them, Colossians 2, verse 10. And fourthly, God is God in the cross of Christ. Listen, God in the cross of Christ disarmed these angelic beings of any authority and power. And he displayed his own power, leaving them helpless and inept. Christ triumphed over all powers, including angelic powers. Colossians 2 verses 9 through 15. The cross is God's triumph. Well, church, just as, the, just as the early church was susceptible to errors regarding angelic beings and their role in the world, so too is the modern church. We see this error in men like Frank Peretti, who popularized the erroneous angelology that long existed in charismatic and Pentecostal circles. Angelic error manifests itself in the heretical prosperity movement, which is fixated on binding and loosing Satan and his minions. Where's binding and loosing in the Bible? You don't bind Satan. But we also see this influence in those, uh, the influence of these two on Vanilla evangelicalism that, that sees a, a demon behind every bad thing that happens or an angel behind every good thing that happens. Yes, we have just as much error regarding angels and demons today as they had in the ancient church. But just because there's error doesn't mean that we need to lose sight of this one fact. We are in a spiritual warfare. The Bible is clear on that. We are to fight against the powers and the dominions, spiritually speaking. But in order to do that, we must think about these spiritual forces correctly or accurately. 
For that reason, I, the ushers have some sheets I want to hand out at this time. Uh, we had some problems with the copier, so I'm not sure we have enough for uh, we have enough for every family, but I'm, I'm not sure we have enough for everybody. So I want you to I wanted you to see here. I have a lot of information to go over, and I, I didn't want you to try to write it all down, but I want you to see what the Bible expresses, how the Bible teaches about demons and angels, so you can understand and not be confused on who they are and how they operate. First and foremost, what is the nature of angels? Well, thinking rightly about angels means that we must understand that they're created beings like any other part of our creation. Also, now listen to this closely, like God and human beings, angels are also persons. Angels are not forces, they are persons. One definition of personhood is, the, is having intellect, emotions, and will connected to a rational soul. Of course, all three of these characteristics are, are exhibited in angels, according to the Bible. Angels have intellect, the ability to reason. Angels have emotions, the ability to feel. Angels have a will, the ability to choose among options. All these are characteristics of personhood. This applies both to elect angels and their counterparts, demons. Demons are not evil forces, but evil angels, that is, evil persons. Demons are not the spirits of deceased men. Rather, they are angelic persons in their own right, and they rebelled along with Satan. In fact, one-third, one-third of the total angelic host rebelled alongside of Satan, and they are referred to in the Bible as his angels. These are Satan's angels, Matthew 25, verse 41, Revelation 12, verses 4 through 7. The roles of angels and demons oppose each other. They oppose each other. Angels do what? They praise and worship God. They serve God. They aid and rejoice in, his, in who he is. Demons, on the other hand, promote rebellion, slander. They promote idolatry, and they reject grace. In reference to Jesus, angels have a particular function in ministry. They announced his birth. They watched over for and, cared and carried out his protection. They ministered to his needs. They aided and announced his resurrection and ascension, and they will aid and participate in his rapturing of the church and his second coming. Regarding the unsaved world, what do they do in the unsaved world? Will angels announce and inflict and carry out judgment on the unsaved? Demons, on the other hand, what do they do? When, when they are allowed, they afflict mankind with physical diseases and disorders, and they can possess people, again, if they're allowed. Finally, in reference to Christians, angels helped believers in communicating and revealing some of the truth that became part of the Bible. They brought answers to prayer. They watched the events in the church. They exhorted in times of danger and watch over and care for the righteous even at the time of death. Demons, however, on the other hand, they're also busy. What do they do? 
They seek to influence and, they, and seek to direct individual Christians as well as the church. First, on a corporate level, what do they do? They oppose the church in general, promoting false doctrine, libertinism, and divisions. They counter gospel ministry. They, they pervert the gospel, and they promote persecution. In reference to the individual Christian, what do they do? They oppose believers, and they cause us to have to struggle against them in the armor of God and not in our own strength. The work of the demonic host. Now, our text this morning relates to this last one. This is part of spiritual warfare. This text this morning, this is where it fits. The cosmic war between God and his angels and Satan and his angels, as well as some of the most important passages on that, on the, in the Bible on that subject, are found in the writings of the Apostle Paul. But before Paul ever wrote it, he experienced it. Before he ever penned any of his passages describing the spiritual warfare, Paul went through spiritual warfare. Our text this morning is one of the earliest of his recorded experiences with demons. Paul's call for believers to stand against the demonic horde was not simply theory for the Apostle Paul. It was his practice. Paul would often request prayer for his ministry of the gospel. Why? Why? He did so because salvation is God's primary tool against the devil who seeks to hinder the gospel. The best way that you can fight the devil is share the gospel. So many Christians have taught me, well, how do we cast out demons? Well, don't worry about that. Just share the gospel. That's, that's one thing you can do. Share the gospel. You see, salvation is God's primary tool against the wicked one. Uh, in salvation, it is the unique demonstration of God's power in that God disarms Satan's forces at, at the very center of their power, which is death. Salvation further demonstrates God good, God's goodness in that his His Purposing to rescue us was solely based on his kind intention and nothing else. Amen. Satan doesn't like the picture of God as a kind and benevolent king. The church, we deserved to be left under his control and eventually punished with Satan. But God purposed to save our worthless souls for his own good pleasure. Amen. Satan Satan is disturbed at the picture of God in salvation. The compassionate, loving Savior. Salvation of, of, of sinners paints a glorious picture of, of the Lord, a, a, a picture, as I said, that, hates, that Satan hates. The cross, the center of salvation, as first, at first looked like foolishness. It seemed like God's kingdom program had been halted. God had taken his best shot, and Satan was able to undo it by killing him. 
But what looked like foolishness turned out to be wisdom. For in the cross, the power and goodness of God was on open display, and true spiritual victory was attained. The cross turned defeat into victory. With these things in mind, let us turn to the first occurrence. The first occurrence, the first recorded occurrence of the casting out of a demon in the book of Acts. Now, I don't know if this surprised you, but this surprised me. We're over halfway through the book of Acts, and we come to the first actual account of the casting out of a demon. Now, there has been a couple of references to this taking place. We saw one reference in the healing ministry of the apostles in Acts 5, verse 16. We also saw this mentioned in reference to Philip in Acts 8, verse 7. In both of those cases, the fact of the occurrence was stated, but it wasn't, the event wasn't recorded. This is the first time we have a record of a, a demon person, person, demon-possessed person having that demon cast out in the book of Acts. We can only conclude from this that there was a significant drop-off in this aspect of spiritual warfare in the life of Christ's followers. Here we have probably the most spiritually vibrant time in the life of the church, and, and we are witnessing a reduction, listen, a reduction in the overt activity of demons. Now, please make note of the fact that I chose this designation purposely, overt. Overt. Of course, demons are covertly working through the world and our flesh all the time. But I'm talking about the, the overt demon possession, demon in your face type of activity. That's gone through a reduction. Here's my conclusion from that. It, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we don't see a lot of overt demon possession today. We can't conclude from this, like some people do, that that, that means the spirit, that the church is spiritually dead. Here we have the early church, the vibrant early church, experiencing a reduction in the amount of demon possessions that we see. Also, this should warn us against those Christian groups that tend to see a demon behind every corner, overtly acting against Christians. This, that's foolishness. They have no biblical support for that viewpoint. Luke's account of the first recorded exorcism in Acts reads as follows. I'm going to read it again. I'm just going to read verses 16 through 18 this time. And it happened as we were going to the place of prayer. A certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit, by fortune-telling. Falling after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out at that very moment. There are actually two parts of this story. 
In the first part, we see the conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil. Then when Christ's kingdom triumphs, which it always does, we see the reaction of the kingdom of darkness. I've entitled these two parts of the story as freedom from Satan's bondage, verses 16 through 18, freedom from Satan's bondage, and then verses 19 through 24, bondage to mammon's love, bondage to mammon's, to money's love. First, let's look at the first of these, and we're going to concentrate just on this, on this part this morning, freedom from Satan's bondage, freedom from Satan's bondage. Now, as I've already noted, in the life and ministry of Christ, there appeared a great manifestation of demonic activity and resistance. Jesus seemed like he was always casting out demons. Jesus was well aware of this and, 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 and faced off often with these demons and their direct assault against his ministry. In, in an attempt to invalidate Jesus' ministry, this aspect of his ministry, which served as a powerful demonstration that he was from God, this part of his ministry was attacked by the earthly leadership who attributed it not to God and the Holy Spirit, but they attributed it to the devil himself. Uh, I want to look at a text here that I think introduces our text this morning very well. Matthew chapter 12, verse, uh, turn there. Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 29. Look, look at how, the, look at how the, the, the leadership at this time described the ministry of Jesus. They argued that Jesus was casting out demons by the devil himself. Look at his response in Matthew 12, verses 25 to 29. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if, and if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how, now watch this, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Listen, church. The conflict between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, is manifested surrounding the issue of the salvation of souls. In saving souls, the kingdom of the devil is being raided, it's being plundered, divested of its inhabitants who are under its control. At one time, you were part of the kingdom of, of the devil, but you were plundered. Christ came in and pulled you out. But to pull you out, to plunder you, he had to first bind the strong man. After he bound him, then he could have whatever he wanted in the strong man's house. Listen, church. Christ is executing the overthrow of the devil's kingdom one convert at a time. 
Jesus' first explicit declaration regarding the church after Peter confessed him to be God indicated this very reality about us. Christ said in Matthew 16, verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Listen, church. As the church of Jesus Christ sends raiding parties against the kingdom of, of the devil, the church will overpower that kingdom and not be overpowered by it. The gates of Hades can't stop the church. The kingdom of the devil can't stop the church. It will not prevail. We're plundering the devil's kingdom through salvation. Satan (laughs) tried to take a stand in Philippi. You see, he, he had someone in, in that city. And he tried to take a stand against the gospel. And guess what? The serpent got defanged. The, ser- the, the, the serpent got defanged. God's kingdom would ultimately triumph. God's kingdom would ultimately triumph. First, Notice with me the demoniac's identity. The demoniac's identity. Luke continued the story of Philippi by making note of a certain demoniac who lived in that city. Verse 16 says, And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Luke has picked up on the account at, at some point after the initial circumstances in verses 14 and 15. This is at a later, a later time. While there was no synagogue there, there was a place of, of prayer. And remember, church, that Jews often went every day to the synagogue for prayer. Well, there wasn't any synagogue to go to, so they would go to the place of prayer by the riverside. And so Paul and the rest of the mission team, hoping to come across those who had not embraced Christ the first time, or hoping to come across some new people, made their way to the place of prayer. But this time there was somebody who, there who would resist them. And she was identified as a slave girl, a slave girl. This description could express either a maid servant, a, a female servant, a female slave, who was oftentimes a young woman. But her age wasn't the major thing here. The, the major thing was her status. She was owned by someone. She was a slave. Of special note in the text was that she had a spirit of divination. A spirit of divination. This phrase translates the Greek term for spirit plus the Greek term, Greek word, python, python. Of course, you've heard the word python. In Greek mythology, the python was a mythological snake 
or serpent that guarded one of the most famous oracles in Greek mythology, the Delphic Oracle. This python was supposedly killed by Apollo. Later, this word came to describe divination itself, the means by which oracles practiced their craft of telling the future. So the, the situation here was more than just conjured or invented oracles. Here there was a supernatural source to the oracle. There was a demon behind the fortune telling. She had a spirit. There was, there was something supernatural going on in this, in this young lady's life. But not good supernatural, bad supernatural. Her oracles were coming from a demonic, a demonic place. The description of her as a slave girl rather than a maiden makes sense, given the fact that Luke connected her with her masters, literally her lords. They were keeping her because she was fortune-telling. This could be translated as to divine something, to divine something. It's the idea of predicting the future. Her actions, listen church, her actions enabled her lords to make much profit from her. They were, they were getting paid, y'all. They were going to the bank. They were making hay off this young lady. They apparently had a lot of customers in this city, and they were making a bunch of money off of what she was doing. Let me, let me be clear this morning, church. Human trafficking and exploitation did, did not begin in the modern world. Sometimes I talk to people who think that cultural and, and societal evil somehow started in the modern world and that, and that the U.S. is the epicenter of all that evil. That's naive. This is what sin produces, and it always has produced it. It results in the exploitation of people, both those who are forced into exploiting situations and those who desire to be exploited for some perceived benefit. Both of these are a consequence to sin. She was likely a young slave girl. So one, one wonders how she found herself in this context. Was she from an ethnicity that the Romans attacked specifically to gain slaves, which was a common way in which slaves were provided for in the Roman slave culture? Church, chattel slavery has been around for millennia, and it has been practiced towards all human ethnicities at one time or another. Were her parents slaves and she was simply born into slavery? Was her demon possession the consequence of her or her family's religious pursuits? Did her family see slavery as a means of gaining from her oppression or as a way of getting rid of a situation they couldn't control? I mean, there's, there are so many unanswered questions in this story today. But whatever the circumstances that stood behind her situation, hers was doubly bad. Not only a slave, she was on top of that, a way for her masters to make money directly. Most slaves just make their masters' lives easier, but on top of that, she made her masters richer. 
Can I take a few moments this morning and just speak to our young people for just a moment? There's a world out there that will use you for its own benefit and not care about your well-being if you choose to reject your parents' oversight and guidance. Running into the arms of the world or worldly people will not improve your situation or circumstances. It will only bring you sorrow and bondage. I know it seems like, you, like your parents' rules and regulations are bondage, but real bondage is being dependent on people for your survival or well-being who use you for their own personal profit. This is what we see here in the this, in this story today. Like many of you young people, when I was a child in my parents' extremely strict home, I told myself I should run away and comforted myself with thoughts of being out from under their control and on my own. When I grew up, I became thankful that God didn't allow me to do that. And I learned that what I thought was being under my parents' thumb was really being under my parents' umbrella. They were protecting me, and I didn't even really know it. Not controlling me, they were actually protecting me. I hope you eventually come to realize that someday. One of the social prophets, one of the secular social prophets from my, from my time made the following statement that I think is still true today. Smiling faces sometimes yeah. <laughs> pretend to be your friend. Smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. Can you dig it? Smiling faces, smiling faces sometimes, they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces, smiling faces tell lies, and I got proof. Be careful, young people. The story of this young demoniac can serve as a warning to all young people who think that the embrace of the world will give them freedom. Embracing the world will actually trap you in bondage both to the devil and to others. But back to our story. Interestingly, her freedom from demon control would come through her resistance to divine control. This seems to be counterintuitive. In, 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 in grace and mercy, God will rescue her from the demon's control through her efforts to try to stop God from accomplishing his will. Satan's attack would not only be repelled, but he will be defanged of one of his instruments in Philippi. Further, this would, be the, this would not be the first time that God used satanic resistance to accomplish divine blessing. Didn't he do that with Jesus? Luke indicated why she met the missions team. What was her interest in the missions team? Look at verse 17. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. 
Here we see the demoniac's interference. The demoniac's interference. The demoniac attached herself. She attached herself to the team. Notice Luke says, following after. And, and was persistently speaking to both their identity and their mission. Their identity and their mission. Their, who were they? They were bondservants of the Most High God. One recognizes immediately that, that this was a very popular way in which Paul often described himself in his own writings, is it not? The idea of bondservant is better translated slave. Slave. Again, this is, this is a normal self-description that Christians have used to identify themselves throughout the ages. Modern translations want to get rid of this language, but by doing that, they, they give Christians a wrong picture of themselves. You're a slave of God. A slave, not a bondservant, a slave. She says, hey, these are slaves. Of who? Of God. She, she referred to God as the most high God. This focused upon the, the transcendence and the, and the majesty of God. This sounds to me like an accurate statement, doesn't it? Is it not striking that, that the slave of man and a slave of the devil called the missions team slaves of God? Hmm. As to what they were doing, she identified them as announcing the way of salvation. Back in Acts 9, verse 2, we saw the concept of the way applied for the first time in the book of Acts to Christianity. This led me to preach almost an entire message on this powerful image of the, of the way. In the Bible, both life and salvation are pictured as, as journeys. And as such, the way served as a good description of various aspects of both of those things. One of the ways that it was applied to salvation was as a, as a description of how one came to be saved. So these men were announcing salvation, she was saying how to be saved. In essence, the demoniac was describing accurately the person and mission of those who had come to Philippi to share the gospel. Now that doesn't strike you as strange? I thought the devil was a liar. <laughs> right? You know what the Bible says? He's a liar. This sure enough sounds like truth to me. How can that be? You, may, you might remember that years ago I told you, church, <laughs> that Satan will tell you the truth if that will get you to sin. <laughs> when we say he's a liar, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything he says comes out of his mouth is a lie. But it's in the context of a lie. That's the issue. When Satan came... to to Eve, and told her in Genesis 3, verse 5, that if she ate of the fruit, that she'd become like God, knowing good and evil. Her eyes would be open, and she'd become like God, knowing good and evil. That was the truth. Genesis 3, verse 7, Genesis 3, verse 22, says that's exactly what happened. She became like God, her eyes were open, knowing good and evil. But, but the serpent said that in the context of a lie. What I always say, rat poison is mostly food. 
It's a little bit of poison that kills the rat. A rat, a rat is not going to go up and just start eating poison. There's got to be food there. People don't just believe straight up lies. Satan always paints the lie in the context of truth. That's why you need discernment, church. You need discernment. We should not be surprised that the liar, the liar uses the truth in the context of his lies to accomplish his will. And then finally, the demonic, the, the demon is cast out, verse 18. We're not surprised then to see the, the apostle eventually respond, verse 18. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. As they went to the place of prayer day after day, as I noted, as was custom of the Jewish people, they went to prayer daily. As they went day after day, this same individual who offered the same analysis of who they were and what they were doing met them. Luke noted of Paul that this greatly annoyed him. This term meant to be strongly irked or provoked at something. Paul was indignant or irritated over what was taking place. But if this was actually an accurate portrayal of who they were, why is, why is Paul so disturbed over this? Well, a couple, a couple of things should be noted here. First off, at best, at best, this was syncretistic, at best. The phraseology, most high God, although it's used often in the Old Testament as a description of God, Psalm 57, verse 2, Psalm 78, verse 35, as well as sometimes in, in the New Testament, Luke 1, verse 35, and Hebrews 7, verse 1, this phrase was also used, listen, by pagans to describe the divine in their systems. In fact, Zeus would have been referred to as the most high God in this region as a phrase. This phrase would have been used to describe Zeus. So who was she really talking about here? It wouldn't have been clear. On the lips of a known polytheist, it would have created more doubt than understanding. But that's just one of the problems. Even if she clearly meant God, which which, the the God of the Bible, which we can't tell by this language, but even even if she meant that, on top of that, her attestation would have served to elevate the pagan over the message of God. You see, Satan was trying to get control of the situation in Philippi. She was a known fortune teller. And so she was putting her stamp of approval on what they were doing. Church, God will not be helped by the work of Satan. While he can choose to use the devil to accomplish his intentions, if he desires, God will not let the devil set the agenda. Satan was seeking to assert his authority over the situation. 
Paul turned towards the source of the problem and spoke, notice, not to the young lady. He didn't speak to the young lady, who was simply a vehicle for the demon, but he spoke to the demon specifically, demanding that it come out of her. In this, Paul did as Jesus did in these cases. He addressed the demon directly and cast it out. The casting out reasserted, notice, the, the casting out reasserted the authority of God. Paul cast it out by issuing a command. He commanded, and the command was asserted in the name of Jesus Christ. The authority of the devil was overcome, listen church, not by the authority of the minister, but the authority of Jesus it's not Paul's authority that casts out this demon. It's the authority of Jesus. As we close out the first part of this story this morning, here are some points that you can ponder before we conclude this story next time. First off, believers need not fear the devil or his forces, for Christ is stronger than they are. Believers need not fear the devil or his forces, for Christ is stronger than they are. Number two, authority in spiritual matters is not found in the believer, but in Christ. Don't be confused by those peddling their own authority. The only authority there is in spiritual matters is Jesus. And thirdly, listen to this one closely. This is the final one. Hmm. Sometimes the devil seeks to overthrow Christianity not by fighting against it, but by seeming to agree with it or by seeking to join with, that, with it. Let, let me say it again because we get confused sometimes. Sometimes the devil seeks to overthrow Christianity not by fighting against it, but by seeming to agree with it, by seeking to join up with it, to, to saddle up with it, right? We need discernment. We need discernment. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is worshiping the same Lord you're worshiping. And an ecumenical gathering is a satanic gathering. They're not interested in the God you serve. They're interested in recognizing the idea of God. Well, we, we, well we're a little bit more specific than that. We're praising Jesus. Because <laughs> he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for Jesus Christ and his authority. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that the gates of Hades itself cannot stand against the, the church. And that includes Berean. That we are to be raiding plundering the kingdom of the evil one.
by sharing the gospel with others, by calling them to repentance and faith. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us as believers to be more attuned to our responsibility to share the gospel with the world around us. And then I pray, Lord God, for anyone who's done in the sound of my voice who hasn't trusted Christ. They're susceptible to the wiles of the devil in a way that they can't control. I pray that they would flee the devil's control and turn to the Savior. In repentance and faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep the moving to a minimum as we prepare for the Lord's table at this time.